When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's all about emotion and it's all about emotional manipulation. When you think that that's all there is and there is no hope and no future, and then somebody offers you something in that darkness, in that blackness that makes sense to you in that moment, they're a savior figure to you where they can become that if they start playing your emotional piano. And that's what abusers and cult leaders do. It's what they're best at. Okay, so Halloween was last week, and I think like most things, you know, they're great leading up to it, and then it's just like done right after, isn't it? It's like the second that one of these festivals or celebrations finishes, you're like, don't even mention it again. And probably Halloween even more than other things like Christmas, because after Christmas, we do sort of hanker for some of it. We lament its end, look forward to the following one, and we we are sad about the inevitable depressing January and February Uh, of darkness in the northern hemisphere and oh gosh i'm sounding quite chipper today speaking of darkness so i had the idea for this episode with former scientologist chris shelton because of halloween i admit it i admit it but it is no longer halloween and i hadn't found a space for it on this here podcast yet but now you're getting it and the things that we talk about are still pretty relevant uh, afterwards i've just let you know how this particularly halloween sausage was made And I love the idea of, you know how most sentences you say have never been said before, or at least most paragraphs that must be true of? To think that language has gone on for centuries with regards to English, for example, and yet it's very possible that no one ever said the three words, particularly Halloween sausage. Think of that. Anyway, we've got some serious stuff coming up. I don't need to explain the concept to you guys too much. It's the five scariest cults with Chris Shelton, who was a Scientologist. Go back afterwards and listen to episode 65 if you want to hear his life story in the cult on On the Edge with Andrew Gold. But today we'll be talking about, well, a bit about Scientology at first and then moving on to our four others in the top five. Enjoy it, learn from it, find stuff out about coercive control and how cults work. Review this episode on Apple, follow Chris Shelton on YouTube and Twitter, I'm on there as well. And I bid you good day, really. Coming up, I should say, is AJ Jacobs on living like the Bible for a year, and Rob Henderson about the family unit and how important it has been, or has the lack of it has been for him. Uh, but now, you're on the edge of Scary Cults with Chris Shelton. We're live. We are live. Hello, everybody. Thank you so much for coming along to this Halloween extravaganza with Chris Shelton, who's a former Scientologist, but also also a, a, an expert on cults and coercive control. And today we're going to be talking about the five scariest cults. They're not the only cults. There are plenty of cults. There are plenty of scary ones, but they're just five we've picked up on. And we'll probably talk about many others and see the questions from all of you guys. Chris Shelton, how are you doing today? I'm great. And and it looks like uh, our technical things are going smoothly, which is really <laughs> nice. You're always a little, ah. 
on live streams, especially mutual live streams. This is only the second time we've done this, but I think it's a lot of fun and that we can go to both our channels at the same time and talk about this. And I thought it would be fun for Halloween too. So I was, I've been really looking forward to this one for, for a few days now. Yeah, me too. We don't do enough in Britain, I think. I mean, it's much bigger in America, Halloween. I was there just recently and saw the decorations and stuff. It was a lot of uh, good fun. Christmas is better there. I think everything is better over there. But I'm going to ask you, I'm going to go in with some cult questions here because I, I know people, especially people who are not as familiar, although if they know me and they know you and they're on both of our channels at the moment watching this, they probably do know a bit about cults. But for those who don't, I want to ask you what, is a cult and how does it differ from let's say a religion okay great so very very different in fact there are tons of groups that we could call high control groups destructive cults authoritarian groups you know all these kind of ominous sounding names they all describe a kind of activity where coercive control is the order of the day not free will or freedom of speech or thought or even belief. You, there, are, there are dictated ideas that must be followed. The group has a central dogma or core belief set. And it doesn't have to be religious. I got to stress that because groups like you can find coercively controlling individuals, predatory individuals, head up groups that can be as diverse as martial arts dojos, acting classes, sports teams, Boy Scout troops. I mean, it doesn't have to be religious, but religion is big for predatories, predatory uh, leaders because there's a ready-made belief set and they can just take it and it, people are used to having lots and lots and lots of different ideas and denominations of activities. And so these guys can take it and morph it into their own thing. You know, and we'll talk a little bit about that uh, during the show here with uh, somebody like a Jim Jones. It's really just about um, a group that's practicing coercion and coercive t using coercive tactics, meaning they're undermining your ability to think, to act, to speak, and to basically have human rights and civil rights. They, they, they kind of take those away. A lot of the explanations for it have to do with the good of the group or the mission or this is eventually going to be good for you. But really, they're just taking things from you and they're really not giving back. It feels initially like they are. There are interesting practices a lot of these groups will engage in that will make it feel like it's an incredibly emotionally impacting or satisfying experience at the get-go, at the start. And in a way, some people even get a little addicted to those feelings, that awe, that euphoria that they feel, because it's so powerful, especially in a group. And that's what keeps them going back is they're kind of chasing that high and spending money and time and resources and everything to get that. And that's where we go, hey, you know what, with the whole... You know, these groups tend to be very isolationist, very, you know, sort of uh, secluded, kind of, you know, us versus them, and those are the bad guys, and we're the good guys, and we have the truth, and they don't, and, you know, this kind of thing. And it manifests in thousands of different ways, but basically that's the kind of group we're talking about. When you talk about non-religious groups, I think one of the most sort of recent ones that pops to mind that we're not going to go into too much detail about in our list but nixium is one of them that i think took a lot from scientology but didn't necessarily have a religious law around it but what about things like um uh, whiplash did you ever see that movie with the about the drumming 
Yes, I did. It was a great movie and a wonderful example of a predator at work. That was a very predatory relationship between that teacher and Miles Teller's character as the as the drummer. And and the way he lied, manipulated, isolated even, because he was always messing with this guy when they were alone. In a group setting, you know, he was he was this wonderful teacher and, and people looked up to him and admired him and respected him and thought he was very skilled. But when he got, you know, when he got miles alone, you know, out come the spikes and and the torture. And that's exactly the kind of uh, personality that we're talking about here. When I when I hear, I think something that I've always struggled to quite get my head around is the coercive control thing. And maybe you can elucidate for me. I read Mike Rinder's book. Maybe we can start with number five, Scientology. We were looking at Scientology. That's what you were in. Now, with coercive control, like Mike's book, and, and whenever I've heard you speak as well, and ever, it, it's like, you know, coercive control, you can't really leave. But then people sort of do leave. And yes, Scientology does horrible things to sort of, you know, to get back at them if they talk badly. But are they really, really made to stay? What is going on? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, you do have physical restraints. And you also have, as Lawrence writes, so, you know, I just keep giving kudos to this guy because it's just such an apt description. You have a prison of belief. You know, there are no more powerful box or chains or, you know, uh, prison rooms than your mind. Because because you, you're selling yourself on the on the on the prison of it, right? You you are the one who putting the, who is putting all the barriers in place, and those are called often those are referred to as double binds. By the way, they're the kind of mental traps that create psychosis, um, and that's the that's what these groups are made up of is rule structures and systems of control that you get involved in, and it's a real. The, the insidious and scary part about these kind of groups, and Scientology is, you know, really up there with, with this, is the number of control mechanisms they, they can direct at you and, um, and the emotional commitment that they can draw out of you. And that's what traps you in it, is you end up committing yourself to this idea, this goal, this system, this you know, whatever it is that's convinced you that it's so wonderful. And so you end up keeping yourself in prison there more so than they're actually restraining you physically from leaving. Nobody ever tied me up in Scientology, but they never had to <laughs> because I was I was raised in this. There was no kind of worldview outside of it. And second generation members such as myself have a have a real hard time escaping because of that. There's never been any other kind of worldview. But, you know, to to uh, to also address the awfulness of these groups, they do physically restrain and stop and falsely imprison people who try to get out. And one of the biggest questions you can ask yourself when dealing with whether a group is a destructive cult or not, high control group or not, is what happens when you try to leave? Do they... Do, is it open door and no problem? And, you know, uh, you want to think a different way or do something different, you go right ahead. Or is it, oh, no, 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 you're going to, you're going to end up working at Burger King, you're gonna, you're gonna, your life's gonna fall apart. Oh, no, you can't leave. You can't go. No, no. You know, and all these efforts to try to stop you from departing, or get you back, you know, uh, and it goes really over the top. 
I mean, really over the top, you know, three, four, five years later, they're still knocking on your door. I mean, that that's the kind of work I used to do in Scientology. So it's so it can get a bit extreme, you know, and, and, it, and, it, and it's uh, it's not good. So I wonder then, I mean, would, would you call, say, Hasidic Judaism or extreme Islam or, or Jehovah's Witness? Are these are these cults? Because because there is that mind control aspect where you feel like if I if I le- I can't leave, you know, you do have that, I, I think. Right. Yes, you do. Um, sorry, I'm just a little distracted by my my dog back there. I hope that's not too loud for everybody. <laughs> Bad um, dog. Yeah, he's he's, he's a little excitable. Um <laughs> Okay, so as far as some of the names of the some of the more mainstream or not mainstream, but the more commonly known groups, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, etc., you have a spectrum here. This is not a black or white thing. Okay, it kind of requires that you think with some groups are worse than others, and um, the Mormons, for example, have mainstreamed a lot of their stuff. Uh, you know, racism is something that was kind of built into their dogma until the 1970s and 80s, for example. And there's still still bits and pieces of this you'll find in their culture, but it's not dogmatic as, as, as obviously anymore, as blatantly. Um, you know, the JWs, they're pretty, they're pretty culty. They're pretty destructive. They have some, uh, it's not, and it's not the beliefs. It's what they do, you know, and they separate families. They break up uh, you know, groups, they have a very imposing dogma. It's our way or the highway. You can't be in and half in and out of this. You have to be all in or you're no good. These kind of judgments are harsh and uh, controlling, and they're that way on purpose. Mm. I'm really interested in the Hasidic Judaism. Just like I'm Jewish myself, and I think some people believe that that's what we all are. I mean, I'm an atheist myself, but um, they, they are to the rest of you know, uh, secular Jewish people, the Hasidic Jews are like maybe Jehovah's Witnesses or something very extreme. Um, I would never have interacted with one, for example. They're really, really quite extreme people. Did you hear about that Lev Tahor cult? That's a new one. I'm not familiar with that name or that. that. They're, they're, they're known as like the Jewish. I only found out about them recently and I'm desperate to get somebody who's left that cult on. Uh, and they're like known as the Jewish Taliban. And I find them fascinating. They've been much like how Scientology and the Sea Org were sort of trying to escape, with Elwin Hubbard trying to escape governments and stuff. These guys, I think, started in Israel, um, and they've been trying to escape the Israeli government because they just engage in all sorts of horrible cultish things, and there are deaths and things. And they, they've gone from country to country, and they were recently arrested, I think, in Central America, uh, and escaped the prison somehow. These like ultra-religious people wearing all the religious garb. And they got out the prison. It's just the the maddest, maddest thing. Yeah, news to me. But, uh, you know, kind of, I don't know, sounds par for the course. You know, there's, 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 there's people, I mean, basically in a nutshell, you know, there's people who get very, very, very sure that they are right. And they can't be wrong. And the very nature of their beliefs demand compliance. They demand conformity with the belief set. And if you don't, you're a bad person. You're a wrong person. You're evil and you must be even destroyed in the most extreme ends of this. And and that's just not good for so many reasons. You know, I mean, just the human rights element of it, the civil rights element of it, the freedom of belief and thought and action. I mean, these things, these groups make a practice out of compromising and taking these rights away from you. 
that what you're saying about um that that we that the people in cults get to a point where they can't be wrong they feel like they can't be wrong is that an extension of just the human mind in general outside of cults as well is that i mean i often feel like all of my the things i think are right but i also know intuitively that they can't be because i can't be right about everything do we all have to guard against that to an extent and sort of say okay always remember that we we might be wrong oh absolutely that's a great question because it allows me to say this <laughs> The thing about cults is also that they are t sort of taking advantage of and revving up all the usual stuff that we have. There's nothing going on in cults that is wildly new and different and so crazily, you know, weird. It's, it's all the usual stuff. We do need to be right in our lives more than wrong, in other words. Our brain's operating to predict our behavior, our environment 24-7. That's all it's there for. And you need to be right if you're going to survive. So obviously, there's a, you know, there's a tie-in there with a with a natural human trait and tendency that we have egos, and those egos are the core of us that that that, that need to direct us through the, our life, navigate us through our life, and we want to make right decisions. We want to be good people. We exist on, you know. Then there's the moral plane. We exist there, and. And you can take these basic ideas, this basic influencers on our on on our behavior. What what is it that makes us do what we do? And as I like to put it, you just dial everything up to eleven. Just everything, you know, the the ego you dial up, the uh, the certainty you dial up, the the you know the 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 need that that our group is right and everybody else is wrong. You know, you rile that up and. You know, the emotional investment and the financial investment, which very easily follows from that, where you're, and really, it, after you've given over all your money, the rest of what you have to give is your time. I got, you know, 27 years of my professional working life in Scientology. You, you know, you just keep giving of yourself to this. And you uh, unfortunately find with uh, a, co a common denominator across the boards with these groups is they don't give back. There's only a pretense of an exchange or a giving back, but really it's just taking, taking, taking from you. Tell me, Chris, what is scary about Scientology and, and what is cultish about Scientology? Sure, yeah. Um, okay, so first off, the thing that is the scariest about Scientology, and this has been remarked on by lots of cult recovery counselors or psychologists or people who study this stuff, is the sheer volume of control, layers of control that exist in Scientology. It's, it's quite a study, and it's really quite something when you start thinking about one group versus another and what makes them worse. Well, layers of deception, layers of control that are being exerted against a person right from the moment they walk in the door. And whether a person's going to respond to this or not, most people don't, and that's good. <laughs> But for those who do, you know, and this is, we're talking, you know, hundreds of thousands of people, even, you know, in terms of how many people have actually heard about Dianetics and Scientology, we can say millions. But as far as membership goes, it really never got, you know, past a million. But that's a lot of people to get fooled and, and bankrupted and, and have their lives ruined and their families broken up. And that's, that's the kind of end result or end product of Scientology is it really does bring a lot of ruination to people in their lives. And what's worse is Scientology also has this uh, very established, very well-organized 
Dirty Tricks Bureau. You know, this this legal division that they have called the Office of Special Affairs. It's not unique. Other groups have these kinds of things. But Scientology is really kind of infamous for this because it's such an they've taken it to such an organized level. The stock then they they engage in stalking and harassment and spying and they'll go through your trash and they'll investigate your life and they'll go around and tell your neighbors that you're being looked into for drug trafficking or sex trafficking or pedophilia or something. And they'll just throw all this wild allegations out if they don't like you or if they're trying to get you to shut up or intimidate you. And that's that's over the top. That's ridiculous behavior. Um, but that's what Scientology does. And it's and it's that again, dialing that that certainty and that extremism up to 11 so that people who do that kind of work, and I, unfortunately, I used to know those people, they feel very justified. They feel like they're the good guys. And, and, and the people that they're taking out, you know, the critics of Scientology, the people who have a different idea than they do, are quite literally evil and must be destroyed, must be ruined. Hey, it's Andrew. If you're enjoying Heretics, there's another podcast I want to recommend to you, especially if climate change, global conflicts and an upcoming election are making you feel like we're on the brink of disaster. What Could Go Right is hosted by Progress Network founder Zachary Carabell and executive director Emma Varvalukas. On What Could Go Right, the hosts sit down with expert guests to discuss the world's most pressing issues without resorting to pessimism or despair that we hear so often. Instead, they look back at how far society has come and look forward at what it will take to achieve an even brighter future. Is progress on the way? They may not have all the answers, but on What Could Go Right, they're asking the key questions. Tune in to hear interviews with upcoming guests like writer Coleman Hughes, CNN host Fareed Zakaria, and economist Alison Schrager. If you're looking for a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people, join them every Wednesday on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts. I remember hearing that some sort of, I, I'm paraphrasing, but a, a quote or a phrase that was something like, um, uh, never trust, uh, or you'd, you'd always want, the worst kind of leader is a benevolent leader or a leader who thinks they're, they're doing good for you. Um, that's that's the worst kind. You want so you'd rather have a leader who knows he's just screwing you over than you know just in terms of people because if they think they're doing things that are good for you, they'll never stop. Yeah, I I think that's a debatable point. Interestingly enough, but because um, true believers are certainly dangerous, and uh, a, a true believer in a in a cult leader is is can be very disturbing. Um, but, you know, it's hard to classify L. Ron Hubbard as one or the other because he was actively both at the same time. Yeah, double think. Yeah. And that's one of the problems with Scientology is that you have this con man running a con, knowingly deceiving and, and fooling people and, and skimming their money. Yet at the same time, he was quite psychotic in his personal beliefs and ideas about how the world works and how to go about doing things. And he was absolutely vicious. I mean, vicious uh with anybody who opposed him or who he thought opposed him yeah i remember hearing that 
in his final days, there was this double think thing going on where on the one hand, he was getting his assistants to run around finding out about thetans and different, you know, poles you put in the ground and things to help him as he was unhealthy. And also that he had been seeing various psychiatrists or and dr- using drugs and things that he wasn't supposed to as a Scientologist be using. I don't know how much of that is just rumor, though, Chris. Have you heard that stuff? Yes, I, I think I know what you're referring to. And there's just a, there's some kernels of truth in there along with a lot of distortions. Um, so let me, let me if we'll just take a minute and clarify. Sure. Hubbard, Hubbard definitely was going senile, dementia, kind of wacko in the last 10, 15 years of his life. Uh, it's a scientific term, wacko. And um, he was losing the plot, you could say, in a very significant way and became incredibly paranoid incredibly paranoid and that is pretty common across the boards for cult leaders by the way a late stage cult leader activity is is the dictator problem is paranoia writ large um so with hubbard in his final years he had a couple things going on one he never saw psych he was prescribed psychiatric medications by an by a, by his medical doctor dr gene dank so he was on some pretty heavy duty medications near the end of his life as as according to the coroner report or the the data that we have um so that's kind of that see he never went and saw a psych uh, that would that would be literally impossible but but you can you don't have to go see a psych to get heavy duty psychotropic medications and hubbard was on those the other thing is that near the end of his life he was terrified of body thetans as what they're called is these uh, disembodied thetans that would attach to your body and uh, and act like a voice in your head or act like a hidden influencer in your in your mind because you don't recognize the voice in your head is different from your own and it's telling you to do crazy things right or it's telling you memories you never of things you've never experienced because it's it's this spirit's experiences, not yours. This is all fantasy, but this is Hubbard. And he believed that they were around and they were going to get him. And so uh, in desperation and in his, uh, you know, uh, sort of senility, he asked a guy who was working for him at the ranch. He was in hiding in Creston, California for the last years of his life. And he had this really nice ranch up there with horses and things, but he was kind of nuts living out of a trailer. And he asked this guy, uh, could you build me a special kind of e-meter, which is an electronic device in Scientology, where I'll hold the cans, because you hold these electrodes to use the e-meter, and I want you to deliver a, an intensive shock to my body to drive those Satans out. And that's that's the story, or at least what I remember of the story of that. And he then, I think he got a little, and then the story goes, he got a little touch of it or a little jolt of, of something and was like, oh, no, 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 I'm not doing that. Because <laughs> it would have been a suicide machine. And I think the guy who built it realized that and was like, well, I'm not going to crank the voltage up where he's going to kill himself with this thing. But uh, it scared him enough that he was like, okay, we're not going to do that. And that was uh, that's that's the story as I understand. It is amazing though, seeing how even the guy who made this stuff up uh, can start to believe it. And I was just thinking because I was going to ask you the next question. I was going to say, what kind of person does fall into a cult or, or Scientology in particular? Because obviously, I, I mean, I've done a lot of work as well on uh, um, extreme ideologies and things, and you find that it's it's actually very intelligent people who can often go one way or the other. Also, with conspiracy theories that you know, um, evolutionary theory. In 
it makes sense to be a conspiracy theorist because you'd have survived uh, because you'd have heard a rustling in the bushes as a snake rather than just the wind and you'd do better so often it's very intelligent people but is there something else that 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 might bind people who fall into cults oh sure absolutely and it's it's all about emotional investment the i i i i can't say enough about emotional intelligence and about understanding our emotional life because our emotions are what rule our behavior it's not our rational mind that is dictating our actions it's our emotions the rational mind the frontal lobes were kind of evolved as far as i'm concerned and can tell from what i've read to justify or rationalize our decision making to make ourselves right for the decisions that we make. But what drives our decisions? Mostly our emotions or our physical needs. If you got to eat, you know, you're pretty focused on that until you eat. If you got to sleep, you're pretty focused on that until you get some sleep, right? The body can drive you to do things because of what, because of its needs. But in social activities or in day-to-day life, our emotions are what are compelling us in certain directions. If we're sad, we don't go out. If we're happy, maybe we do go out. You know, that's that's behavior driven by how we feel, not what we're thinking. And um, and that's kind of important uh, to understand because what cults do is they hook you through your emotions, your emotional needs. Uh, everybody has them. This this is not a weakness. This isn't like something that's wrong with us. We're, we're you know we're not all supposed to be Mr. Spock. We're supposed to have emotions. It's just that people can use those against you and they can misinform you or deceive you, tell you certain things are a certain way that can either rile you up or make you feel really good. Either way, once somebody's got your emotions in their hand, they pretty much control your behavior. During times of stress, trauma, deep emotional change or loss, um, that's when we're most vulnerable. And that's when they can get their claws in on you most easily. And so most of the stories about people joining cults, not all of them, but most of them involve taking advantage of people emotionally, right? Or getting hold of a person during an emotionally tender, let's say, time in their life. And, um, and that's when you know, again, that's when those vulnerabilities express themselves. And people are looking for some help or they want some support or, you know, their emotional or their their life support system isn't really there because they've moved to a new city or gotten a new job or lost a loved one. And it's, you know, it's really significant to them. There's a hole, there's a hole in their life and they don't know what to do with it. And they're constantly paying attention to that and 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 stuck in the grief or the loss or the denial or the anger of that and until you know you can reconcile and resolve those emotions someone can come along and more easily take advantage of you on that level we have uh, people saying um, we should talk about Jonestown. That might be coming up yeah. later. I don't want to give away uh, anything. Uh, for number four, and obviously, you know, we could go on about Scientology for a much longer time. Chris and I, both of our channels are just filled with videos about Scientology. Uh, but this is our spooky Halloween uh, event covering, you know, five big cults, big scary cults. Now, number four. I initially suggested the Westboro Baptist Church, and then you said you were you were on board, but then last minute we changed to the Moonies. Um, so we're going to go into the Moonies. Should we talk a little about the Westboro Baptist Church and why, and then why you felt Moonies uh, sort of went above that? Absolutely. So um, Westboro Baptist is 
is a significant group because they have been featured in the media for their hate, for their hate, really. I mean, uh, Fred Phelps, who's no longer around, was a really awful guy. He was very prejudicial, you know, very prejudiced, very bigoted. Um, extreme example of us versus them. I mean, this was a very isolated, very um, uh, secluded kind of group, and and it was family run, and and uh, you know his daughter Megan has has uh, famously gotten away from all that and wrote a book and and exposed a lot of that nonsense that was going on there, and this was the group for those of you who don't know who would show up to be and I uh, this is crude but I got to say it to just to, to tell everybody hmm. you might you might want to be careful about the the particular word uh, just because of the YouTube will, will ban the video but it might be the f the f word you're about to say that I'm jumping in to prevent you from saying. <laughs> Correct. Thank you for thank you for that. Yeah, these were the people who had signs at funerals that say, you know, God hates F A G S, and you know this kind of thing. They, they, these were very very bigoted people, and they were they were riled up into that by Fred Phelps. But the reason why I I was kind of like, well, I don't know about having them be on the top five is because one, they're they're pretty, uh, you know. Uh, they they they've they've really not around a whole lot anymore, and they're a very 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 tiny group of people. Um, especially since Megan's been doing all of her uh, exposés and talks about that over the last many years, it's really kind of you know you just don't really hear too much or see too much from those people, and it's not a growing group. It's not a it's not a really electric expanding activity. They're just a little hate group that uses the Bible as an excuse to hate people. And that was Fred Phelps in a nutshell. And he spread his dogma of hate uh, to his family and to a few other people who came in and listened. And so, yeah, awful, awful group. In no way am I trying to uh, marginalize that or say that's not a thing or they weren't bad. It's just they're so damn small, you know. If if somebody hadn't come along and 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 put cameras at them, you wouldn't even know they exist. Yeah, and but they did do that, and there were those great Louis Theroux uh, documentaries uh, about it. I my first ever little little trivia here. My first ever episode of the On the Edge with Andrew Gold podcast, which was initially you know just an audio podcast, but it's also on YouTube, was with Nate Phelps, who is the the son of Gramps or, or um, Phelps. Uh, was it Fred? It's Fred, isn't it? Fred. Yeah, yeah. They call him. They call him Gramps and, and all that. And just and he's now a, a gay rights advocate. Um, so he's you know so he's completely flipped around. And as you say, I believe it is um, you know shrinking if if anything. So I think you're absolutely right to go with the Moonies as, as as number four. What is the Moonies? Tell me about the Moonies. Okay, cool. So in in a nutshell, um, the Unification Church or the Moonies is they're called the Moonies because Sun Myung Moon. <laughs> Uh, this South Korea started in South Korea, and this guy Moon was the leader, and he was a religious leader, and he had his own sort of uh, dogma, you could say, where he imagined he was sort of Jesus reincarnated. And this started actually with um, uh, hints or or indications of being a sex cult. I mean, he was really into you know having sex and and with him. Uh, you know, people, lots of women, right, with him. And uh, and 
and it kind of grew from that. There's, there's, they had some government help. The CIA got involved because it was a South Korea, North Korea. I mean, there's, there's a lot of weird, weird history with this group. But the problem with the group is it's huge. And it's now Moon died a few years ago. And after he died, his family, it, it was sort of split up into three different groups one and i don't i don't pretend to be an expert on the moonies i understand the mechanisms of cult and coercive control and behavior and stuff like that the moonie history is not you know the thing i'm i i'm totally knowledgeable in but these are the broad strokes and so now there are three different groups one of them is a uh, gun cult they are they they got into gun manufacturing when moon was around they are big on the sushi trade. Apparently, I'm told by a number of people that uh, if you buy sushi in any form, anywhere in the U.S. or elsewhere, you're contributing to the Moonies. Like they're that deeply in that industry, and that's the that's the reason I brought up the Unification Church is because their their fingers are in so many pies. And it's not just this weird group with these weird beliefs. It's these people have influence, and they have influence at a governmental level. And the Moonies are a group of folks who will exploit children, women, uh, men for labor trafficking, uh, just exploit them for money, uh, get them going out you know, in vans, selling flowers or bits and trinkets and pieces and collecting all the cash and doing this on road trips. I mean, I've, I've interviewed people who described what they had to endure as children growing up in the Moonies, and they were labor trafficked. And then there's a whole sex trafficking layer to this. And this is the group that it has the big mass weddings. They're famous for the mass wedding photos where Moon would marry, you know, a room full of couples. And those couples had just met. And they were there because Moon went down a list or went down a line and went, you and you, you and you, you and you, just completely arbitrarily joined people together in, you know, a holy universal union and said that you guys are supposed to be a couple now. And these people proceeded to have children and they proceeded to abuse the hell out of them because they shouldn't have been together. They didn't want to be married. They didn't like any of this. And it wasn't. At all, what you know, this isn't just this just isn't how relationships work. This isn't how people work. This is how slaves work, and that was how Moon treats treated his followers, and how they continue to this day to be treated as a slave labor force. So it's and it's it's extensive, it's worldwide, and it's powerful. and And there are people who are deathly afraid to uh, speak out against it or go into the details of it because uh, the Moonies, I mean, Scientology ain't got nothing on the Moonies as far as the stalking and the harassment and the, and the actually coming out. Wow. I had no idea. Yeah. 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 This is a thing. So, um, so this is just a group that is very, very dangerous and <laughs> something that really, you know, the old, they're, they're really in the spotlight right now and correctly so because of the, um, the former prime minister of Japan was assassinated, uh, Abe. Uh, what was that? A few months ago, a year, you know, within the last year. Well, he was assassinated by by a man who grew up with his mom in the Moonies, and his mom had given over all their money, had given over their life, had you know, had been ruined by this, and he blamed Abe because Abe had been a government official who had been very friendly, spoken at Moon events, spoken at their 
uh, things, gave them a lot of government support, and he wanted to lash out. I'm not supporting or endorsing what he did in any way, but that was why he did it, is because he thought Abe and the Unification Church and all this, all this corruption had literally ruined his life and the life of his mom, and he wanted to, to do something about that. Yeah, his mom had spent all her money in that cult, I believe, which is yeah. so sad. Uh, but as you say, you know, it doesn't mean you go and shoot the prime minister, uh, which was also very sad. Yeah, but, but you, you know, I, I interviewed a former member called Elgin Strait, uh, who talked about that feeling of you feel like you're um, being used in a sense by your parents because they need to have you so they can go to heaven and I think they need you to then marry another person from the cult so they can go to heaven. So it's like they, they are just desperate for you to do it. So you're a commodity, really. It, exactly. That's a, and, and that might be a great way to describe how cult leaders or these predators, as I like to call them, um, view their members, their membership, right? As they are property. They are, they are, they, you, you are, you, nowhere is someone more objectified than in a cult. Man, it's so, it's just inhuman. It brings out the inhuman side, which I, I just, why cults are so scary, I suppose. Um, number three on our list, we've just, we've done number five, Scientology. Number four, we did the Moonies, which we opted for over Westboro Baptist Church. Number three, we went with a, uh, a non-religious in the traditional sense cult, which was the Manson family. Tell, tell us a bit about the Manson family. Oh, absolutely. Okay, so the Manson family is interesting because it is—it's um, such a tiny thing. I mean, it's just—it's one guy, and and the people he was immediately affecting uh, in his immediate environment, his quote-unquote family, so to speak. And this demonstrates so many uh, cultic principles, including the one I was talking about with you know disenfranchised women, young women were you know on the streets. Uh, they, these were the people who ended up following him and and uh, joining up with his cause. And and there was a lot of drug activity, which helped him in coercing them into believing he was somebody special and they were part of something special. And this was unique and different and better than anything they could ever get from their families or their friends or from life even though they were living in squalor, doing drugs, acting crazy, uh, literally dumpster diving to survive. Uh, it was really quite, quite nasty of a, of a lifestyle they were leading. And they were, I think, up in the Hollywood Hills or something. And again, you know, I don't have the blow by blow, but the mechanisms of control that Manson exerted, a, a lot of it was just kind of organically rolled out. It wasn't like Manson was a, a, a brilliant student of psychology. But it, again, demonstrates that you can evolve these techniques. You don't have to go learn them. You just practice on people and you see what works and what doesn't. And Manson was quite, you know, pretty, pretty good at that. And at, le at least with this crowd of people that he had built up around him. And that led to you know, death and murder, Sharon Tate and, and her baby and various things. And, and it was, uh, it, it was, you know, it was obviously a, a catastrophic tragedy, what resulted from that. Um, otherwise, we probably never even would have heard of them, you know, because they would have been running around LA, breaking and entering, committing petty crimes, doing goofy stuff. But Manson and uh, his psychosis and the drugs enabled Manson to get these these women and uh, men who followed him to do and think uh, absolutely insane things. 
he had some ideological principles, if I understand it right. And it was this whole anti-cop thing. And, you know, they were very anti-society. And that was not exactly um, that unusual in the 1960s. You know, so again, you take this, you know, kind of cultural social activity or something that a lot of people are on board with or are riding the wave of, and you dial it up to 11. And then you get the extremist nonsense that follows. Yeah, I believe he uh, got quite deep into some sort of Beatles conspiracy uh, to do with Helter Skelter, um, that that song, and, and that they foretold things in code. Is that is that right? I, you know, I don't know. I know, um, I know, Helter Skelter was was you know features in there somehow. But to be honest with you, I, I don't want to comment on it because I'm not exactly sure what the connection was. Okay. Yeah, I'm reading a bit here, just, you know, a, a lot about uh, predictions of murders of whites by blacks and retaliation and a whole sort of race war. Yeah, there was a whole race war thing that was being fomented then. And that was being actively worked on by all, by all sides of that problem um, then, right? The social unrest in the 60s is, you know, I mean, it's famous. And they were riding the wave of that. You know, Manson didn't care any of that. I mean, that wasn't Manson's. Th- I mean, Manson might have said he cared about that, but he was just nuts. I mean, he was he was quite psychotic. He just happened to have a good smile to certain people, and he happened to have this charisma, this follow me, and and the world will be your oyster, you know. And they and these poor sods believed him, and they ended up spending to this day, you know, the rest of their lives in jail for it. It's really strange if you look at photos of Charles Manson when he was a boy. Uh, he's really sweet looking. He's like a sweet uh, child, uh, and then as a as a obviously as a man, even a young man, he had s- such a mad look in his eyes, but was still quite handsome, I suppose. And maybe that played into you know attracting women to his cult. Yeah, probably so. These were not just off the street. This wasn't like a Scientology outfit where they had some brick and mortar shop and were inviting people in with personality tests. I mean, these were. These were people who were living on the streets. It was it was pretty pretty degraded stuff. Uh, right, and they, they came along, and then and how many? Do you know how many roughly they they murdered? Oh gosh, I don't remember. I mean, it was Sharon and her baby, and then I think there were two or I think there were two or three other people, uh, if I remember right. I and that might not that might be too few. I just the the one that always that always hit home for me was the pregnant, you know, actress. That was the one that was the most like what. Um, but there were a couple others as well. Yeah, nine murders uh, in total. The LAPD is, uh, in- investigating twelve unsolved murders as of as of twenty nineteen. That was so. It could be a lot higher. So that is um, an example. We talked about whiplash before, of course, but it's an example again of a, of a non-religious, um, scary, spooky Halloween related. Well, not Halloween related really, but cult. Um, and then number two. We've gone with, I suppose they're also not exactly religious, are they? Can you explain the whole Jonestown thing? Oh, very religious. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Now, Jonestown was, I mean, Jim Jones was a preacher. And in fact, he pro- he preached a few different things during his life because his, uh, his dogma sort of changed over the years. He started in, you know, he was kind of Pentecostal, then he went over into this sort of socialist commie. I mean, it kind of got ideological. Uh, he was up in San Francisco and then he ended up 
taking his group down. He was he started preaching a very openly communistic message, kind of aligned with the Soviet Union, in fact, during this was in the 1970s. So we're talking about Cold War times where Russia was not any kind of ally of the United States or even friend. And um, I mean, you know, not like they ever have been, but it, but Cold War tensions were were pretty intense during the 60s and 70s. And Jones was a preacher from like 19, I, I, I was doing a little bit of, of looking up on him specifically before the show. And I think it was 1955 until his death in 78, he was a minister and he was leading a flock of people who believed in his ministry and his dogma. But it, like I said, it became more, you know, it started with feeding the homeless and doing community activities. And there was some good stuff going on. That's how he got in with certain politicians, the mayor of San Francisco, certain congressional leaders even backed him. Uh, I think all the way up to favorable words from the Carter family at one point, you know, before things went insane. And then he got kind of nuts. He really started losing uh, the, the the plot. And the he started talking about, you know, how the Soviets were the good guys and we should be communist. And then... Um, started becoming very paranoid and set up a shop down in Guyana. And he took his people down there. And they numbered over a thousand people. This was not a small group of folks. And they went down there and he started um, preaching a very, very paranoid kind of message uh, where the world was coming after them and things were not going to be good for them and they needed to make this stand, and uh, they started doing, uh, this is end stage, People's Temple. This was called the People's Temple. And down there in Guyana, they were doing um, uh, drills on a semi-regular basis for uh, having people come and try to kill them or take them away or take them prisoner. And and Jones was like, they're coming to get us. They're going to come. And so he was kind of getting this paranoid mindset riled up, riled up, riled up. There was also food and sleep deprivation going on down there, which are very, very powerful um, influences on behavior and 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 uh, making his followers a little, you know, a little crazy, you know, tra- so traumatized that they were acting kind of crazy. And there were families down there; they were whole families. It was women, men, and children. So finally, the drills started becoming more and more real. One went on, one of these drills where they had his guards with guns, they had guns down there, would go out into the jungle and be firing off rounds, making like this was actually happening. And they never knew it was a drill until after it was over. And one of them went for six days. Imagine being thinking you're under attack in the jungle for six straight days. <laughs> I mean, that's crazy making, you know, oh, no, just a drill. It's all good. Right. But it was Jones's people out in the out in the jungle with the guns. So finally, um, there were enough former members, family members who had made enough noise that a senator, um, uh, Leo Ryan, went down there with some reporters, with some ex-members. They flew down there to investigate this. He went to their the, the whole group of folks went to where Jones was. He was hepped up on benzos and other drugs, and he was out of his mind. And he had been giving, you know, daily, hourly sermons uh, that went on for hours. 
They were playing Jones 24-7 off of speakers. I mean, it was crazy town down there. And this is 1978-79. 78, I think. So Leo Ryan goes down there. Somebody tries to stab him. They beat feet back to the plane. They let him go, ostensibly. Jones goes, okay, we'll let him go. But then he sent guys to the plane and he had actually, uh, a couple people in the camp had passed a note to the senator, hey, we, we want to leave with you. We want to get the hell out of here. So he was taking some people with him. And this was, this completely set Jones off, completely over the edge. And he um, sent people to the plane. They infiltrated the ex-member group right there on the ground, they had one of one of Jones's loyalists went in there with a gun. So in the plane, when they were about to take off, the senator gets shot, other people get shot. You know, these guys show up with guns and start shooting. And a number of people were killed. The only people who survived that attack survived because they fled into the jungle. And then the Guyana you know, force uh, military found out about this and went in there and found that while they had been um, after this attack, Jones had instituted the final solution, the final drill, you could say, where he enforced a mass suicide. And um, and they used Flavor-Aid. They did not use Kool-Aid. Everybody talks about drinking the Kool-Aid, but it was actually Flavor-Aid for those who care. And... Um, and it was, it was, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to make light of this. It was quite horrific. There were um, 900 plus people killed, including I think 90 something children, if I remember this right. It was devastating, and no one, no one, no one saw it coming because they weren't paying attention and because they didn't know what to look for. And of course, he had taken his his show down to Guyana. So it was kind of out of sight, out of mind. So when somebody did go down there to check it out, it all blew up. And uh, Jones himself uh, died in that gunshot wound to the head. And uh, it was a mass um, disaster. It was a tragedy. And it imprinted itself on the American psyche in a way nothing else really has. To this day, you still get the, the, you know, the sayings and the drink and the Kool-Aid and that kind of thing from that. That all comes right out of that. Nobody had a clue what cults were about until that happened wow it's yeah a, a real seismic event and uh, i think you're you we weren't making light at all i think it's important to point out the the, the misquotes that or the wrongly attribu- attributed quote or drink or whatever because it wasn't kool-aid of course it was it was flavor aid um and i suppose it's also a perfect example of um the road to hell being paved with good intentions at least early on because some of that stuff seemed really good and nice and there was a lot of evil stuff i guess bubbling beneath do, do you know why why he just was it just he could see the walls closing in on him and he wanted to take everyone out yes it's again another example of sort of the late stage predator dictator problem and by the dictator problem you know what i mean right like you have a dictator has certain unique problems that he has to solve in order to remain a dictator or an authoritarian you have to have a spy network you have to have control systems in place that brook no discontent whatsoever they just you just do not um, you don't get to disagree. You just don't. You know, it's the dictator's way or it's the highway, and the highway means prison or death. And you have to institute measures to accomplish that th- those ends. Otherwise, you're not going to be the dictator anymore. And the, the, the ironic problem of this is the harder you do this, 
the more rebels you make, the more problems you're making for yourself because human nature resists being chained up. And and yet a dictator to maintain dictatorship has to chain people up. So the paranoia that comes with that is completely organic and, and quite valid. Uh, the, 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 more, the more you mistreat people and hurt people and abuse people, the more they want to do that back to you. So you have to set up the secret police and you have to set up the, the, the out in the open police and you have to, you know, all these things that we're all so familiar with. These are all, you know, necessary mechanisms for a cult leader slash authoritarian dictator to maintain control. So the paranoia that we see out of L. Ron Hubbard or out of a Jim Jones is not entirely unfounded paranoia, but because they are also generally on some kind of heavy medications, drugs, alcohol, or other chemicals, um, it, it ramps up. And they, and they ramp themselves up well past 11. And then they, then they take efforts to ramp up all of their still loyal followers. And that's, the, that's in part the dictator problem I'm talking about here. And Jones was immersed in that. And he lived paranoia. He kept preaching to his people. They're coming to get us. They're coming to get us. And it looks like suicide might be the only option. This didn't all just happen on the last day. He'd been preaching this for quite some time. There's a very powerful man in Russia right now who's probably watching this YouTube video with one single tear as he recognizes the bind he's gotten himself into. Because I suppose that's that thing is once he decided to invade Ukraine, it was like you've either got to go all the way and win. You can't now back out because you get you know, disposed, uh, de deposed, is that the word? Um, you get you get potentially killed, you get put in prison. And that's the dictator thing, isn't it? The panic that might, once you go over that line, and you do the dictatory stuff, there's sort of no going back because, you know, you've got to you've got to last the rest of your life. Uh, or yeah, so I can see how that paranoia must really start to bubble up. Um, we should get on to our, our our winner, and I think um, winner people who are who are paying attention can probably guess uh, that it is Heaven's Gate because it's the only other one that really sticks out in the memory to such an extent. It's not necessarily, I suppose, any worse because it's not as big as many of the cults that you've discussed, and not as scary on a, a global level. But in terms of just a spooky, scary image, Heaven's Gate. Tell us about that. Yeah, absolutely. Marshall Applewhite was a um, well. You can still find him on video on the internet if you care to look and you will see in his eyes a level of glossy unreality uh there's there's and, and it just he exudes it it's scary it's terrifying especially when you know the outcome of this which was that he gathered a small group of people together i think it was uh in the tens i mean it was not hundreds of people even and these people believed that there was a comet, a uh, hail bop, I think they called it, that was uh, coming. It was, a, it was a legit phenomenon. And, the, and he said that there was an alien ship uh, following in the tail of that comet, and it was coming to pick them up. But it was going to pick them up spiritually, and they had to divest themselves of their mortal coil, so to speak. They had to, to get rid of their body in order to go up and join the aliens and be part of this new enlightened race of creatures that they would be 
you know, uh, joining so that they would lead these amazing lives because each one of those people had some kind of backstory that, you know, wasn't so great, or at least they thought that it wasn't so great. And they openly talked about this uh, for quite some time. They didn't talk about mass suicide, but they talked about the comet and joining them and, you know, being part of this group and, and how this is something that they needed to do. It was just, you know, their families don't understand. You can find, and it's just so sad. It's so sad watching these cult members discuss the rationale and reasoning for being part of this group, you know, it's, uh, it's kind of leaving their families behind or their loved ones behind because they're on this path and I just wish you could understand and I just wish, you know, and this kind of thing. And they eventually, um, Marshall directed a mass suicide. They all killed themselves um, in their beds uh, in a group home setting and uh, and they were no more. And I think the, I think the website still to this day maintains somehow. I think there's still one or two or there were for some time after a few people who were, were true believers in that group but weren't part of that or weren't there for that who maintained the idea of it for a while. And um, this is a case where everybody was all in. This was not a case where Marshall Applewhite was some con man. He was a true believer. And you can see it in his eyes. It's just there. Um, And he took it all the way. He went with them. Uh, He wasn't trying to take their money. He wasn't trying to get sex out of them. He He was just... Somebody who had a belief set. I think he had lost his wife or there had been some tragedy in his life and it had caused him to sort of descend into the spiral of madness. And he took a lot of people with him. And that's really the sad story of, of uh, Heaven's Gate in, in an effort to or in a, in a tragically misguided uh, you know, ideal of having a better life. A bunch of people killed themselves. It's incredibly sad. Um Chris, as a as a former Scientologist who I believe subscribed to some of the folklore, is it around around sort of um, you know Zeno and that stuff? Is it easier for you to be able to get into that sort of empathetic state and 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 see where these or how these people came to believe those things about Heaven's Gate? Absolutely. I mean, again, it's a, it's all about emotions, and it's all about emotional manipulation. There is not one person who walks on this earth who has not had the worst day of their life, the, the really bad, awful period in their life where everything sucked, everything looked like it was going nowhere, and their life was just a black pit of despair. We've all experienced that. And when you think that that's all there is and there is no hope and no future, and then somebody offers you something in that darkness, in that blackness that makes sense to you in that moment, they're a savior figure to you, or they can become that if they start playing your emotional piano. And that's what abusers and cult leaders do. It's what they're best at. This is spe- speculate. You can only really speculate. But when you were at your lowest moment, let's say, in Scientology and y- your most fervent belief, had L. Ron Hubbard or David Miscavige uh, turned around and said, look, we're now departing our, our, our bodies we're going to the next place. We've all got to drink this. Do you think you, you might have been tempted? I've been asked this before, and I've always said no, because Scientology is not that kind of group. The dogma doesn't align with that idea in any way. The only way to, to get to spiritual freedom and immortality is actually through the auditing process, not through letting go of your body. 
if you, you know, according to the belief set of Scientology as I lived it and believed it and, and, and talked with every other person I ever knew, it was all about doing the auditing to get up, up, up. And if you just go in and killed yourself for whatever reason, you'd just be trapped back in the wheel of, of prison, right? You'd just be stuck back in that life, death, life, death, life, death cycle. So there would have had to have been, in order, I'm not saying that my level of belief or the extremity with which I believed it wasn't there, because it was. And I absolutely, without question, would have taken a bullet from a scavenge Right, I would have put myself in harm's way for that, or an L, you know, or L. Ron Hubbard when he was around. So that was there. That level of commitment was there. You know, my willingness to go put myself in in harm's way was there. But dogmatically, it just wouldn't have made any sense to 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 off myself because of that. And so that's why I kind of resist the idea with Scientology. And yet, I will absolutely admit that everything was dialed up to 11 so anything was really possible thank you for for sharing such a candid response chris um so that's our that was our top five scientology the moonies the manson family jonestown heaven's gate a special mention to westboro baptist church um and we've got a few other special mentions that you know do take those with a pinch of salt every everyone uh chris do you have 10 minutes for q a should we do a little q a with, with absolutely people? Absolutely. Good. We've while, while we wait for questions to come in again, do please subscribe to la la la. Subscribe to both of our our, <laughs> our channels. This is the marketing side of everything. It's how the sausage is made, as they say. Uh, hit the like button on the video and all that stuff, and uh, and and introduce yourself here because we always like getting questions from people and hearing from people um, and and all that stuff. Um, there are some questions I starred before. Um, let's see. Um, there's one from L. Ron Hubbard, obviously not really him, saying, can you ask Chris about Tommy Davis? Oh, sure. Yeah, I can talk a little bit about Tommy Davis. I mean, he's he's an ex-Scientologist, ex-Sea Org member. He's kind of gotten on with his life, but he's still loyal to Scientology. He won't disparage it or speak out about it. He used to be, the reason Tommy Davis is important or known about, is he used to be the PR spokesperson for Scientology. When they needed somebody to go on CNN, he was the guy. You know, if they needed to give an interview, he was the guy. And he was this kind of, um, you know, younger, James Bondish, good-looking, you know, guy. And um, he worked at what was called the Celebrity Center International in the president's office. So he, he came up as a second-generation Scientologist. His parents are Scientologists. He was raised in it. And they are famous, by the way. His parents are also Ann Archer. That's his mom. And uh, I think Terry Jasko or something like that is his, is his father, who's a pretty famous TV producer. So he was kind of in and around the industry. And yet he uh, joined the Sea Org. So he was doing the billion-year contract deal. And he was committed to that. Until he made a series of blunders, um, the biggest of which I'll I'll, I'll share with you is that he was on national television i think it was cnn and he was lying up a storm about this that and the other thing with scientology and then he said well look if l ron hubbard didn't cure himself of his war wounds as he claimed then dianetics really doesn't have any basis for being true and i guess he said that with the idea of ridiculing the idea that hubbard didn't do that like he was trying to poo-poo the idea 
And yet he basically admitted that the whole thing is based on a lie in a, in a really roundabout, stupid way, right? And as a PR spokesman, it was a terrible blunder. And you never heard from him after that. <laughs> and so what ended up happening was he got kicked out of the Sea Org, he and his wife, and then he got divorced, and then you didn't hear from him. And Tony Ortega, famously our, you know, our, our journalist, Scientology watcher guy, um, it just does a fantastic job. He reached out to Tommy a few times since then and asked him what's up. And, and Tommy gave him the finger and was like, I'm not talking to you and we're not, you know, I'm not doing this. And he is still loyal to Scientology. So that's, that's Tommy Davis. He was the one I, I've just realized that gave John Sweeney, the, the British um, functioning alcoholic journalist, um, it got him very riled up in that video. He yes. said, you were not there. You were not there. Um, That's right. Which a- Kept calling him a bigot. <laughs> yeah, that <laughs> that's was how you get word. someone. That was John Swinney's trigger word, and they 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 did research to find that. Wow! And they figured it out, right? They kept pushing his buttons and investigating him and investigating his life, because John Swinney was a BBC reporter. He was he was he was seriously investigating Scientology. And he was flying around in the U.S. and interviewing people, and they hated it. They did not want that. Scientology did not want to have anything to do with that. And wanted to, as Hubbard says, wanted to ruin him utterly. And so the way they did that was they egged him and pushed his buttons and triggered him until he finally blew up on camera. And that was it. They were, that's it. We, we devalued him. We showed him up and, uh, and look at us. We're the good guys and he's the big bad guy. You know, and, and, and Scientologists were, I, I mean, I remember when that happened and we, you know, we were like, uh, okay, <laughs> cool. <laughs> and then I got out and I was like, what the hell did that poor guy have to go through? Oh my God. You know, it was just so I've ha- I've actually interviewed John Sweeney on my it's a good guy. Oh, me too. <laughs> and he, yeah, he's great. And I suppose it's a lesson about you, who whoever you send to Scientology as a journalist has to not have because obviously John talks a lot about being a functioning alcoholic, you know. And one time when I interviewed him, he he was, you know, he could he was really slurring his words. Uh, but still, oh, wow. be, yeah, still being very interesting. He was in Ukraine and he's like gulping down more and more drink. And it was just a fascinating interview. And he said, you know, I'm drunk. I don't care. And all this. But um, oh, I, I, I did not know about any of that part. Just so you know, that's the, this is the first I'm hearing about functional alcoholism on the part of John Sweeney. I, 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 I hope he gets past that or is able to uh, overcome that personally. I, th- I think he just sees it as part of his life, you know. So we should get to we should go through the questions a little quicker so we can get to more people, I suppose. Uh, Regina Falange, which is it obviously is related to the friends, her, her name, I think. I think. Um, maybe, I think it is. Is it Falange? The Falange? Uh, Phoebe? Friends? Um, anyway, she asks, what about things like Tony Robbins or Andrew Tate? And I would just extend that to say I think that even YouTubers, to an extent, uh, to be a successful YouTuber, you sometimes have to jump through certain hoops that are perhaps not a cult because you can leave whenever you want. There's no coercive control, but are cultish in nature. What do you think? Yeah, I think that you can use a subset of the cult tool book or tool set, right? On a YouTube video or in a video thing or at a seminar or something. And you can manipulate people. You can lie to people. You can present false pictures to people or you can spin things in ways that, again, 
It's all about appealing to their emotion. And when you appeal to people's emotions and, and manipulate them in directions that are harmful to themselves or their lives in some significant way, you are dealing with a manipulator or predator. And that's what they do. That's how they get along in life. And we see this with a Stefan Molyneux or, yeah, Tony Robbins. Now, Robbins has been, you know, he kind of did that, talked about it, then kept doing it. So I'm not really sure where that guy's at, but I don't trust him. <laughs> you know, these are people who, you know, like Keith Raniere um, or Rainier, you know, they get into this neuro-linguistic programming, this NLP stuff, and it's all about language and body manipulation and emotional manipulation and there's it's it's a laundry list of tools that you can use to you know to mess with people and mess with their sense of reality and and hypnotism and trans induction you know things like that so these guys use those tools that doesn't necessarily make them a cult leader but it does make them an, a manipulative or abusive or predatory personality and those those are people i try to try to stay away from it's a me mario rui asks can david koresh and the waco texas cult fit in a top 10 Absolutely. Yeah, there's a lot. There's Amshin Rukio is also somebody mentioned that, which was a Japanese cult that tried to, um, that was actually making sarin gas and tried to kill a bunch of people in the subway system there. And they got caught, thank goodness, before, you know, before it was too big of a disaster. It could have been horrifying. Um, so you have other groups that have done some really destructive stuff that were very, very culty. Um, and Waco was definitely a very visible one. And it was noted really, especially in my book for how grossly mishandled it was by the authorities involved, right? The ATF and FBI and the, and the people, they had a hard problem. I'm not trying to be, you know, just point from the sidelines. I've, I've looked into it a bit and it was a rough problem. You know, they had guns there, they had kids there, they had rumors of all kinds of crazy behavior and they had people who were willing to lock themselves up pull out the guns and start shooting and so before they knew it they had escalated the situation beyond its any ability to control it and it went out of control and stayed that way until it ended in tragedy maybe we could um maybe yeah guys put a one in the chat if you want us to do uh, a, a follow-up i'll have to see if about chris's availability but in a couple of weeks or something put a two if you think you know what we've heard enough about all of this uh cult listing stuff and then we will retire and you'll never hear from us again but uh i'm interested to see how that goes and for now we can answer another question or chris can at least from saab sandu asking well, i suppose i should click them up on the screen yeah is lisa marie presley in or out of scientology and didn't charles manson once do some scientology i haven't heard i didn't know that okay yes uh, i believe lisa marie presley is thoroughly out of scientology she has alluded to such in songs that she's written and it appears that she, um, according to the reporting from Tony Ortega, he has definitely given me the impression that she is fully out. Her mother was a very long time, Priscilla has been a long time uh, Scientologist, and I don't know if she is still in or not, but I think Lisa's totally out. And uh, Charles Manson talked about reading Dianetics, I think, at one point, um, and maybe doing a course or something. Maybe I can't even speak to the factualness of that. There's some relationship there, but it's not the case that Manson was a practicing Scientologist who was going down and, 
you know, to the church and and doing auditing or something like that. That was that's not the case with Manson. I think it was a flirtation. There was a flirtation with Michael Jackson as well, wasn't there? Uh, <laughs> I'm not going there. There was a flirtation with David Beckham as well, wasn't there? Right. Um, <laughs> Botticelli Chick writes, and this is more of a comment than a question. Chris is one of my favourite guests you have on. He's always fascinating. P.S. Whenever you style your hair like that, Andrew, you kind of remind me of a young Paul McCartney. Happy Halloween, everyone. What do you think of that, Chris? Both of those comments from Botticelli Chick. I will, uh, I will give Botticelli Chick two <laughs> thumbs up. Absolutely. Roger Ebert's uh, two thumbs up. Um, does, oh, does speaking out... Diasuku San asks, uh, still bring you into trouble with them tra- tracking you down, Chris? Um, they don't track me down. As far as I know, they're not following me or stalking me or anything like that. I got a hate website. I've got various trolls and nonsense that happens from time to time. But most, mostly I'm, I'm small enough and, and not on the main stage enough that they don't feel I'm somebody they need to have in their top five list. And Scientology, because it's been shrinking over the years so so enormously um, and steadily, they do have limited resources to do the dirty work. So I've managed to avoid most of that. The, the people who get that abuse to this day are the women victims of Danny Masterson, who are who are currently that trial is happening out in LA. Danny Masterson's a Scientology VIP celebrity who's on trial for rape and sexual assault. I shouldn't have said that word out loud, but sorry about that. But um, that's uh, that's a thing. And the women who accused him, um, they are being stalked and harassed by Scientology to this day. Leah, Mike, you know Paul Haggis. I mean, you know, there's there are people who are who are still getting that who are way higher up than than, than me oh we've got uh okay one last question helen piggott asks how big does a group have to be to be considered a cult um well anything past a relationship really because you know there is there is a cult of two we call that a domestic or uh you know relationship uh cult you can get all the way down to that because um, the dynamics and the control mechanisms are all the same. When you see domestic violence abusers, male or female, you're probably looking at a history of coercive control in that relationship. And it's the same kind of control techniques that get used on a domestic partner that get used on cult members. So we studied all of that kind of together as a thing because it's same, same, same. Well, there you go. Those were all of our questions. Um, thank you guys for asking them. We'll get back to them you know, next time if you've got more questions. We'll hopefully do something soon. Uh, there were a lot of ones in the chat. I think people do want to, to see that. So Chris and I will talk behind the scenes about doing that. Uh, Chris, what have you got? What do you want to direct people to at the moment on your channel? Is What are you looking into these days? Oh, sure. Yeah. Well, we've been doing some coverage on Danny Masterson's case. And uh, we have been, of course... Continuing, I do interviews with ex-cult members, with sociologists, psychologists, professionals in the field. And I like doing that because I like educating people more than just delivering up salacious details that people can laugh at. I, I'm trying to do a bit more than that. And um, and I and I think we're doing pretty good, you know, as far as that goes. So you can find, uh, find a podcast every week, a Q&A show every week that I do. Frequently, I'll do them live. I'll probably be doing some catch-up Q&A episodes because I've got so many questions in my queue. I want to get caught up a little bit. So 
uh, that's what you'll see on my channel. There you go. Make sure to check that out, guys. On my channel, there's a, I'm doing a Q&A for my 30,000 subscriber celebration tomorrow. So that's what happens. So if you've got more questions, things come along. If you're on my channel at the moment watching this, it will actually redirect you to that. Uh, and yes, also lots of cult and extreme ideology stuff. So do come over and subscribe. Make sure you've liked this, please. Hit comment and tell us stuff. And have a very happy, happy Halloween. Any last words, Chris? Happy Halloween. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, yes. Um, uh, what was it? Uh, no, it doesn't translate well as a, as a, as a set out loud dad joke. So I'll just say, uh, check out my Twitter feed if you're interested in dad jokes as well as cult facts. <laughs> Happy Halloween, everyone. Happy Halloween. <laughs>